Hello and welcome to the Early Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Roper. I'm a certified midwives assistant and a neurodevelopmental delay therapist. For my primary job, I own a private therapy practice for children with developmental delays called Early Roots. I also work part-time for a midwifery practice in Colorado Springs called Mountain Miracles, where I assist at births and provide postpartum care to local moms and babies. Today's episode is all about ADHD, specifically the history, the current explosion that we're seeing over the last few decades, and the cultural trends that have come alongside it. I talk about ADHD a lot, both in this podcast and with families and other professionals. I work with a lot of children who have an ADHD diagnosis and even more that have some or many of the common ADHD symptoms without the diagnosis. And the interesting and difficult thing about this topic is that everyone has a slightly different idea of what it means. The term ADHD has become a part of normal vernacular, but it comes with a lot of mixed opinions, ideas, and misconceptions. And this is not just true of parents, but of professionals as well. Professionals who work with this population of people have a lot of mixed ideas and opinions too. And I get asked by a lot of people why we're seeing so many ADHD diagnoses now, and whether or not I think that these are correct. So basically, is ADHD being overdiagnosed? And if not, what is causing it to explode? And these are not easy questions to answer, but I'm hoping to use this episode to make things a little bit clearer. So before we jump into the history, the first thing that's important to do is to define an ADHD diagnosis. So this is a diagnosis that can be given by a health professional like a psychologist or psychiatrist, and it's based on the diagnostic criteria listed in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And I'm not going to read through the diagnostic criteria because it's pretty involved, but I will put a link in the description if you want to really get into in depth with the criteria on your own. The super short version is that children or adults need to have a set number of symptoms on the list, things like difficulty with attention, impulse, trouble controlling their body, things like that. And they have to have enough symptoms for a minimum of six months, and they have to occur in more than one setting, meaning these symptoms can't be situational where they only happen at home but not at school, or temporary where they've only occurred for a short period of time. And it's important to know that the DSM is an American publication, but it's used by many countries around the world as a standard for mental health care. It is looked at by many people as kind of the Bible of mental health care. And the DSM is also something that is updated periodically, so you'll see changes made to certain diagnostic criteria, and then certain disorders are added or removed as the DSM is updated. And what's important to know about this book, at least for the ADHD diagnosis, is that the diagnostic criteria is symptom-based and somewhat subjective. And when I say that, I don't mean to diminish or discourage subjective assessments for healthcare. They are an essential part of any kind of healthcare. But what I do want to point out is that this diagnosis is based on complex psychological symptoms. There are no laboratory tests that qualify someone for an ADHD diagnosis. The symptoms involved in this diagnosis are extremely complex. They have connections to so many different systems, including social, emotional, developmental, physical, physiological, neurological, biological, and psychological. 
So it's no wonder that so many different professionals have so many different opinions on how to treat ADHD. And I'm going to make the argument throughout this episode that this is because ADHD isn't really a concrete thing. When we talk about it casually, we talk about it like it's a discrete medical diagnosis, but it isn't. We're trying to shove a very complex problem into a very narrow box, and we're trying to use the medical model of disease to explain a complex system. And for what it's worth, I think that this is the wrong approach. In an interview on the Successful with ADHD podcast, Dr. Gabor Mate explains this well. He says, ADHD is a description, not an explanation. Too many people look at kids and say, okay, they have poor impulse control, difficulty focusing, and racing thoughts, so they get an ADHD diagnosis. Then when you ask, why do these kids have those symptoms, the answer is inevitably because they have ADHD. And it's a logical fallacy. An ADHD diagnosis describes what symptoms you have. It does not tell you why those symptoms exist, or more importantly, what the cause is, so you know what the best course of treatment or remediation is. An ADHD diagnosis is not an answer. It's a description of a common set of symptoms that you can often see existing together. So let's look at the history of the ADHD diagnosis. I'm not going to go into too much depth here because I'm sure that there is a ton of cool information on the early history of this diagnosis, but I've already dedicated way too much time researching this episode that I need to keep this early section a little bit brief. From what I can tell, there was interest in this diagnosis, or I should say there was concern about attentional and behavioral problems for a very long time. There was a German physician in the 1700s who describes patients with attentional and behavioral problems, but this seemed to really start to gain steam in the early 1900s, at least from a professional standpoint. There was a British pediatrician, Dr. George Still, who gave a series of lectures on psychological problems in children, specifically behavioral and attention problems in children who were intelligent. Then in 1936, the FDA approved the use of benzodrine, which is an amphetamine, and psychologists began prescribing it to children who had what they called hyperkinetic problems or minimal brain dysfunction. And then in the early 1960s, there was a Dr. Keith Connors who began working with children who fell into this category. And at the time, they were using several different terms. They were using a diagnosis of hyperkinetic reactions or minimal brain dysfunction. And Dr. Keith began studying the effects of amphetamines and stimulants, specifically Ritalin and Dexedrine, on children. And he spent decades developing evaluation techniques and treatment methods that provide pretty much the whole foundation for the ADHD diagnosis that we use today. He was a very highly educated man and is widely considered the godfather of ADHD. Then in 1987, the DSM-3 was published and hyperkinetic impulse disorder was removed and officially changed to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, it's important to know that at this stage, there had been a big push for several years to get the mental health community to recognize attentional problems as legitimate. I read through the book Driven to Distraction a while back, which gives a lot of great real-life stories of people, mostly adults, who had severe attentional problems that had gone unrecognized for years. So for a lot of doctors, this DSM edition was a huge win. 
Since the release of the DSM-3, we have seen an explosion of ADHD diagnoses. In 1987, approximately 0.6% of children had a diagnosis, and in 2023, those numbers have raised to between 9 and 12%, depending on what age group you look at. I also think that it's worth pointing out that these numbers reflect the children who have actually received an official diagnosis. This does not include all of the children currently on wait lists or the children with concerning symptoms who do not qualify for a diagnosis. So looking at the last 30 years or so, you can see a huge spike in ADHD diagnoses, which brings up the question of this episode, which is, is ADHD being overdiagnosed? And if not, what's causing this explosion of attentional problems? So there are a couple of things that could be happening. There are lots of people with lots of different opinions, so I'll try to kind of break down the main ones. First, it could be that we aren't really seeing an increase in problems. We're just more aware of them now, that people have always struggled to this same level and we're just now recognizing it. I definitely think that this is a small factor. I'm sure that 200 years ago, there were kids and adults who were really struggling who fell through the cracks because people didn't understand attention the way we do now. That being said, I have a hard time believing that this is the norm. The other thing that could be happening is that there is no increase in problems, that we just have a lot of kids who are being diagnosed and medicated for normal behavior. It could also be that we're seeing an increase in problems and that that increase in ADHD diagnosis is completely accurate, in which case we need to take a hard look at the last 30 years and figure out what's changed and what's causing these problems. And lastly, we could be seeing an increase in problems that are all getting lumped into this ADHD diagnosis, but that actually represents something much more complex. And this one is the one that gets my vote. Actually, I think that in reality, there are probably elements of each of these explanations that are true. And this is an important thing to consider, both for parents and for professionals, because the way that we think about attentional problems directly impacts how we treat them. If we look at attentional problems through the lens of ADHD as a medical-type diagnosis, then the solution is to find a medical-type treatment, typically a medication, to give and then move on. And currently, that's a big part of what we're doing. We kind of have two main treatment options for ADHD, medication and behavioral therapy. And let me be clear, about 75% of kids who receive treatment, either medications, behavior therapy, or both, see some improvement in symptoms. There is a reason that these two treatments continue to be utilized. The concern that I have with this standard protocol is twofold. First of all, it's symptoms-focused, so you're just treating symptoms. You aren't really getting to the root of the problem. Now, to be fair, that actually isn't entirely true for some of the behavioral therapy. There are some really good therapists who treat ADHD in a more holistic way and approach it as a social, emotional, and family dynamic problem, and you can definitely do some root healing when you change your attachments and social relationships, but I'll talk more on this a little bit later. As for the medication, originally it was thought that these medications would actually teach the brain to function better. In an ADHD podcast done by a renowned Stanford neuroscientist, Andrew Huberman, he breaks down the evidence and protocol for ADHD treatment in a really clear way. And in this episode, he talks about the benefits and theories behind medicating for ADHD. 
One of the theories being that medication would help increase serotonin and dopamine uptake. And they thought that this would help train the brain to do these things better on their own. The idea was that it would teach the brain how it was supposed to function so that it could start doing that without assistance. And this is a fantastic principle, and if this theory were true, it would be a great indicator for medication use temporarily. However, from a physiological standpoint, this doesn't seem to be the case. There was a large study called the MTA study that looked at medication use, behavioral therapy use, and combined use in children over a long period of time. Initially, those results were very promising in the medication group, and they seemed to show a significant reduction in symptoms. However, these results were not long-lasting. By three years, the children on the medication were doing no better and possibly slightly worse than those in the other groups. They also showed statistically significant differences in growth, indicating that children on medication may have an increased risk of growth restriction. And there is also a new study linking long-term ADHD medication use with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And this pokes holes in the theory that medication is helping the brain learn how to work better on its own. And this also makes sense, given that most children and adults become tolerant to medications and require increased dosage or medication changes after a period of time. While this may not be the case for every individual, this trend seems to indicate that medications for ADHD are at best a temporary band-aid and don't seem to be training the brain how to function better on its own. Now, I want to say I'm not anti-medication. I work with many, many kids who are on medications who seem to derive some benefit from them, and I am an absolute believer in parents' rights to make decisions for their children and their families. I'm a huge believer in informed consent and informed refusal. What I am concerned about is the information and advice that is given to parents to help them make these choices. I'm concerned about bad science being used to influence these decisions. Parents deserve informed consent about the choices they have for their children. The second concern that I have with this standard protocol of medication is that you don't actually have to have a diagnosis or even a problem to see temporary improvements in attention when you take certain medications like stimulants. Many, many people who take stimulants or amphetamines will feel better for a period of time. The problem is that when this happens, it reinforces the belief that the original diagnosis was correct and that there is some sort of medical-type problem that a person needs medication for in order to function properly. While this may be true for some people, I have a hard time believing that it's normal for 10% of the population to need to be on a medication in order to regulate their attention properly. I think that the solution lies somewhere else. So I want to back up and talk some more about some of the different theories around the increase in ADHD diagnosis, specifically whether or not this diagnosis is being overused. One of the first doctors I want to talk about is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nibben. She is a clinical psychologist who runs the Center for Family and Child Development and has been a pioneer in family and child development over the last 40 years. I recently listened to a podcast episode she put out called ADHD Overdiagnosis, Why We Should Be Worried, and I'll put a link in the description. In this episode, she discusses research that she conducted nearly two decades ago where they, when they were concerned about the explosion of diagnoses happening then. 
They looked at diagnosis rates in countries across Australia and the U.S. and found huge discrepancies. They found several factors that played a role in whether or not someone was likely to receive a diagnosis, and these included geographical location, socioeconomic statuses, traumatic history, whether specifically whether or not they were in foster care, postal codes, and most concernedly, what doctor they went to. They found that certain locations would have up to six times the diagnostic rate of other comparable locations, and that small numbers of doctors and medical facilities were responsible for the vast majority of diagnoses and prescription rates. In response to these findings, health commentator Norman Swan explained the results by saying, when you see variations like this in medicine and health, you know that you're not dealing with evidence-based treatment, but opinion-based treatment. You can see the same thing in other areas of healthcare, like C-section rates, which is a topic I know a lot about. This example may give you a better idea of what they mean. So in the U.S., your biggest risk factor for whether or not you will need a cesarean, which is a surgical birth, if you don't know, is where you decide to give birth. Here's what I mean. The average cesarean rate in the U.S. is around 32%. But if you take any given hospital, you'll see huge variations in C-section rates. For example, you can take multiple hospitals located in the same city, serving mostly the same population of people. Obviously, there's going to be some variation, but you'll see vastly different cesarean rates. You can have one hospital that has a 60 to 70% cesarean rate and another with a 10 to 15% rate, serving virtually the same population. When you see huge variations in treatments like this, you know you're not dealing with evidence-based care. In this example, we have very clear health recommendations from the WHO, that's the World Health Organization, saying high-risk hospitals should have a cesarean rate between 10 and 15%. In the hospitals with 60% cesarean rates, you know that they're either performing a lot of unnecessary surgeries or they're providing care that leads to a lot of necessary surgeries. In the case of ADHD, what Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Niven and her team found was that one of the biggest factors that contributed not only to an ADHD diagnosis, but also to medication prescriptions was postal code. And this was true for practices they researched both in Australia and in the United States. And this is a concern. It means that we are definitely seeing kids who are receiving a diagnosis they don't need and possibly also missing kids who could benefit from a diagnosis. This is bad health care. Dr. Schmidt-Niven has been very vocal about this problem. In that episode, she echoes the concern about concerns about trying to fit ADHD into a medical-type diagnosis while ignoring all the complexities of human relationships, psychology, and biology. Dr. Schmidt-Niven is not the only one with concerns about this. There are many examples of similar studies and reports. In 2021, there was a review posted in JAMA Open Network that looked at 334 studies on ADHD and found significant evidence of overdiagnosis and overmedication. British psychologist Sammy Tamimi, who specializes in working with children and adults, has authored many studies and critiques looking at the current ADHD trends and medication use and reports similar concerns. I will link several of his articles in the description if you want to check them out. 
Probably one of the most notable critiques came from Dr. Keith Connors himself. He is the doctor I mentioned earlier who pioneered most of the research and diagnostic criteria on ADHD. And most notably, he is known for studying and promoting the use of Ritalin in kids with attentional problems. Shortly before his death, he wrote a strong critique of the current climate regarding ADHD. I'll link the article so you can read through it. It's pretty long, but I think that one part is worth quoting here. Dr. Connors writes, I felt and announced to stunned colleagues that the overdiagnosis of ADHD was an epidemic of tragic proportions. Tragic because many kids get the wrong diagnosis and really have a different problem that needs a different treatment. Or they're normal youngsters given a treatment they don't need. Or the drugs prescribed for them are given away or sold to other students wanting a quick fix for studying or partying. A reason why schools and colleges now have huge numbers of students using stimulant drugs and why emergency rooms are increasingly overwhelmed with overdosing youngsters. Alan Schwartz of the New York Times exposed how disease-mongering and ruthless advertising by Big Pharma had fed an eager medical system with false data, also capitalizing on the cooperation of unscrupulous thought leaders in child psychiatry. Doctors, of course, bear a lot of responsibility. Prescriptions for stimulant drugs can only come from doctors. Most hardworking primary care or general pediatric practitioners mean well but have little time to really get to know their patients and too little expertise to be skeptical of misleading pharma propaganda. This brings us to an important piece of this puzzle, which is the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry has infiltrated the medical and mental health system over the last decades in huge ways. And this is a really important piece to understand. Big Pharma has played a huge role in providing education to doctors, mental health professionals, and families on ADHD. They have conducted huge amounts of research on medication use for ADHD. They provide funding to many of the large support groups for parents of children with ADHD. They also provide funding to the people responsible for writing and publishing the DSM, which I mentioned before is basically the Bible of mental health diagnoses. As a side note, after the release of the most recent version of the DSM, the British Psychological Society released a highly critical letter to the American Psychiatric Association detailing many concerns that they had about the new publication and the direction it was going with mental health diagnoses. These concerns are not just limited to alternative health care nuts like myself. There is big controversy within this profession itself. In the U.S. in particular, but also in other countries, we have a long history of concerning science, quote-unquote, coming out of the pharmaceutical industries. Not only are they influencing the narrative and the education around healthcare, but they have a long history of truly corrupt practices that falsify science and change the overall trajectory of healthcare. If you really want to understand this in depth, you should watch the documentary Crime of the Century about the opioid crisis. Now, I'm not saying that the opioids that were being pushed are the same as the ADHD medication we currently see. What I am saying is that we currently have a toxic marriage between our medical system and the pharmaceutical industry. That show does a great job of breaking down that relationship so you can see the factors at play. One of the big factors that influenced the rate of ADHD diagnoses was the pharmaceutical industry. 
Now, before I get anyone jumping on me saying that I'm an ADHD denier or anything like that, know that I am 100% aware that there are many, many children and adults who struggle with attention and a variety of other concerns. I work with kids every day who are struggling and need help. What I am saying is that our current system of medical type diagnosis and prescription drug treatment isn't cutting it. We need a more robust and in-depth understanding of all of the different factors and systems that are at play. This requires us to scrap the medical model of care, at least when it comes to our children's mental health, and take a more holistic approach. There are a lot of things that we know affect the development of attention and of advanced brain functions of the prefrontal cortex. We know that there is a physical component. Our gut health, nutrition, toxic exposures, and exercise all play a huge role. We know that there's a social component, that the ability to regulate our attention in part develops as a part of our relationship with others. Family dynamics and the quality of our social attachments play a major role in many areas of brain development. We know that there is a movement and experiential component. Our brain develops through movement, use, and experience. When we don't get our physical and developmental needs met in infancy, it directly impacts future brain development. For example, we have some really amazing research on rats that shows if you deprive them of rough play as infants, it directly stunts the growth of their prefrontal cortex. Rough and tumble play is just one area of early physical development. There are tons of other important things as well. We also know that there is a physiological component. Stress exposure, trauma, emotional development all affect attention and higher level brain function. There are so many important connections, and I'm sure I'm even missing some of the major ones right now. If you want to understand why a child is struggling with ADHD symptoms and how best to help them, these are the things that we should be focusing on. If you're a parent with a child that you're concerned about, please feel free to visit my website, earlyrootstherapy.com, to learn more. If you're a professional working in a related field, I would love to hear from you too. I'm always looking to learn more and build more connections with people who can help me support kids and families to better health. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something helpful. Mm-hmm.